Today, I'm joined by Eric Kaufman. Uh, Eric is a professor of politics at Birkbeck University of London. Um, his topics of research include nationalism, political and religious demography, and he is also the author of many fine books, among them White Shift, Populism, Immigration, and the Future of White Majorities. A very spicy title indeed. Welcome, Eric. <laughs> Great to be here, Alex. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm very happy you agreed to come on. Uh, we've met personally. You're one of the few people that I've met personally on this podcast <laughs> uh, at NatCon, a very um, controversial meeting of, of very strange figures, uh, um, American-inspired fascism, I, I hear, um, with a Zionist, also anti-Semitic bent. Very, very strange. But um, I was glad to be invited. That was This was actually my third NatCon, and that's, uh, yeah, it says probably something about me and my character and my affiliation with all these terrible things. But... Um, yeah, maybe maybe we could start a little bit with that. I mean, um, you know, what's what has the impact been? Um, maybe the reception of your speech, and maybe what you've heard about kind of the the wider space. And, and you are in London, so obviously this is kind of much much more close to home to you. And you've probably read the the press a bit more attentively <laughs> than I have here. Uh, but yeah, it's um, it's been very interesting. A very for me a very UK flavored event. It's very different from the American NatCon. Um, but definitely, um, yeah, very, um, you know, the, the press had a field day with it. That's what I can say. Yeah, I, I mean, thanks, Alex. And it was great to, to meet you as well uh, in person. And I really loved your, your talk as well. Uh, yeah, what is NatCon? I mean, I've never been to the American one, even though I know a number of the speakers and I've watched some of the talks. You know, this was really important, I think. And I think we were just talking before we came on. You know, na national conservatism was trending on Twitter here in Britain when the conference uh, began. And there have been just a, a torrent of articles in the press, um, a lot of them from the progressive side, especially, but also from the liberal conservative side being very critical. Uh, but yet I was, I think if you, you know, the London Review of Books had a, a, a typical hatchet job article, but towards the end, the writer uh, who, I, who I've tangled with on, on several occasions, he sort of tried to jump in on a Twitter mob that was trying to cancel me uh, some years back, but um, mentioned that he'd been in discussion with a liberal conservative uh, MP uh, who was someone in the Tory party who was saying you know, before the event that this would, was going to be a nothing burger. After the event said, the tectonic plates have shifted. This is really the direction the parties appears to be moving in. So I think it's just in a UK context, it has, has had a massive effect. Um, as you saw at the conference, it was a combination of, you know, more pointy-headed intellectuals like you and I, but also quite a few conservative MPs and people who are movers and Shakers like uh, Suella Braverman, for example, um, who kind of used the conference as a way to, I think, sort of set out their stall. And I think the combination of this gave it quite a distinctive flavor. And this is happening at a time when the Conservative Party is adrift. It's down in the polls. It's got a lot of people angry at it who are its own voters, uh, a lot of dissatisfaction and factionalism. And in that, into that environment, this conference, I think, is really sort of hit and made quite a big impact. Yes, that, that's kind of, um, that was my feeling as well. Um, it, it, it is very different from the U.S. version, just because I feel like politics in the U.S., I didn't even realize how different it was until I went to NatCon UK. 
Um, but there is a much more practical feeling in that, that much more is possible at the local and state level in the, in the U.S. And I feel like a lot of the speeches there were pretty much almost like, um, you know, you go to business school and you get a case study and they say, okay, we did this in Tennessee and we did, we did, we used these levers. We pulled this and we got people involved in this. And this is how you solve the problem of whatever transgender X. Um, this is, you know, the, the one in the UK was very much, um, maybe a little bit more intellectual, more high level, maybe a bit more airy fairy. You know, it seemed <laughs> like the UK, um, even, even someone like Swilla Braverman, who's essentially in power and has, you know, essentially the, the, the machinations of power apparently at her disposal was fairly top level about what her intentions were. So um, maybe you're right. It was more of a kind of declaring allegiance to a new type of movement rather than, you know, saying exactly, okay, this is my 10 point plan and this is where we're going because um, I don't know. It's, it, it feels to me like these short speeches that people give there are a bit more about in-group signaling and kind of setting out a certain tone rather than um, a, a clear direction of what's going to happen. Because, I mean, you know, I love national conservatism. You know, I'm fairly aligned with, with what people are talking about there. But in power, it is not this this whole movement. Even if, uh, you know, the Tories are in power, it's more of a um, kind of a, a right liberal type Margaret Thatcher inspired thing that people... Actually, you know, it, it is it is the thing that people are fighting against now. Or, um, yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think you know, it's the picture. What happened there at the event was an overlap of a number of networks. I mean, you had, you know, a number of intellectual networks around London, people who write for publications like Unheard or Spiked or The Telegraph, or and, and you have those people there. Then you had think tank people there. You had special advisors who tend to be a bit more edgy than their politicians they're advising. Uh, and then you have the politicians. And of course, the Tory party has factions. One is the common sense group with John Hayes, who was a speaker. You have Suella's faction, which is, say, more skeptical on immigration than other factions. So I would say it was certainly not all factions of the Tory party represented. It was those groups that are at least somewhat critical of of the direction perhaps the party has gone in. Um, so, yeah, I think that that is really the sort of was the kind of gathering point. Of, so, so it was the overlapping of these different networks. Now, you're right that this there's a lot of referencing of Burke and of, of some of these high level political theorists who you're right. I think their practical applicability is limited um, so there's quite a bit of that, and, I, and, and there were that perhaps reflected the tone of some of these people writing in the in the magazines and the think tanks. Um, and the, and you're right that there isn't the sort of red state policy innovation that you know that we see in the U.S., which is, I mean, the U.S. is in a way a leader in a lot of these in a lot of these areas. There have been some innovative things done in government, but nowhere near as much as I think has occurred in the U.S. So in that sense. My hope would, would be perhaps in the future that there might be some of that more practical sharing of best practice. Um, I think that's quite new. Now, do you see, I mean, as someone being on the ground in the UK, any changes, um, real life, you know, tangible changes in, in policy that are going in this direction? I mean, you kind of have the, the turf wars, which is kind of this unique UK phenomenon where um, trans is, is being fought quite uh, intensely by 
I guess kind of a, a mixture of, of, of older and younger radical feminists, but uh, who are very loud and, you know, very intransigent as minorities go. Um, but it doesn't seem like um, the UK is leading the charge on, on much else. I think that's correct. Uh, the UK, now I'm Canadian and I, Canada's the, the, the laggard and is doing the worst on all of this. But I, so I'd say the UK is ahead of Canada, but it is behind the US in many dimensions, in particular, the fight against critical race and radical gender theory in schools. Now, um, it is true that the government has initiated a review of the sex education curriculum, which could, could, I say, have potentially revolutionary implications, but I'm a bit skeptical. And the reason I'm skeptical is even if they find that a lot of crap is being fed to children in schools, uh, the ability to actually have the stamina to see through a program of reform with this government, I'm a bit more skeptical of. Now, they have done a few things. The Academic Freedom Bill, which I was involved in, uh, has passed, and that is already making a difference. So Oxford University you know, some students are trying to cancel Kathleen Stock. The university has had to say no because of the law. So there there are some real things happening. And of course, the government did eventually get around to uh, retain and explain policy protecting statues after the sort of George Floyd uh, hysteria was kicked up. Uh, so they did do a few things. Uh, but a lot of the things they did were sort of half-hearted and, and not, they really still are of the mindset that, you know, culture wars are a bit unseemly and you know we're a bit too establishment to get our hands dirty with that kind of stuff i think that is still the the dominant attitude amongst the uh, business liberal mp majority in the conservative party there is no figure like a ron DeSantis or even a glenn youngkin that is going all in on this and, and making political capital out of it which they could easily do if they were determined uh so no i would say in that sense the uk is is not is behind the u.s the only area as you say, is with um, with the report into the uh, Tavistock Clinic and the attempts to, to to sort of battle with the Scots over gender recognition uh, and to, to, to roll that back. I think that the U.S., certainly with what I hear out of Biden, certainly seems to be more in the gender affirmation camp still. Um, so in that respect, I think the U.K. has uh, erected a bulwark, whether that will uh, you know, the, the labor, um, the, the leader of labor, Keir Starmer, who's likely to be the next prime minister, has not affirmed the, the sort of has not gone with a gender affirmation position, seems to be willing to uh, stick with the current dispensation, which is to say no to transitioning before age 18 and, and you know, protecting women's spaces to a great extent. Whether that will continue, I don't know, but it's not on, on a super firm footing, I would say. It, it does seem to me like there is um, a more clear um, polarization in the U.S., or at least um, a, a clearer separation between you know red states, blue states, what these meme plexes both mean. And it it, it does feel to me like a lot of, you know, I mean, the, the gender stuff on its face is is absolutely insane. You know, it's it's mutilating. It, there's not really it's irredeemable for anyone who's not too worried of distancing themselves from um, kind of a tribal opponent. Uh, and I feel like that's, that might be a factor in the, in, in the U.S. in a way that it may be not, because you, you, you have class divide in the U.K., which I think are go deeper and um, you know, have a different type of history, but I don't think you have the same 
um, kind of the same contrast between um, you know coastal elites and or people associated with you know and and their and their uh, uh, client classes and kind of the you know flyover country center center of the country red state type. Um, well, I, I I'm not sure about that. I I do think the same divides are there, particularly between the. Uh, pro- progressive activists, you know, in the U.S., the more in common survey finds about 8% fall into that. You could expand that number a little bit. There's a similar group in Britain, and Matthew Goodwin's book, a uh, uh, recent book on value, I think it's Values, Voice, and Virtue, talks about this liberal elite uh, in Britain, as in the U.S., exists. Um, and the Brexit vote was a, was a major split in the population, which I think it remains electorally salient. Now, there is Perhaps a larger group of people who change parties. Clearly, we're seeing that in the current election, uh, likely in the next election. So it's not as polarized, but I think it is also significantly more polarized than it might have been, particularly along the kind of new politics realignment axis of culture, the open-closed, to put it very crudely, the open-closed culture dimension, which is different cuts through the old economic left-right dimension. So that is a new, that realignment has occurred in Britain as it has in in the U.S. Uh, It's not as polarized, but I do think that these culture war issues, if you look at the press, they're receiving as much attention in Britain. I just think that they haven't percolated as much to the voters. You know, so if you look at American voters, culture wars issues for Republican voters are above the median in terms of uh, priorities whereas for British conservative voters, they're still quite low ranked. That's an important difference in terms of how important these issues are for voters, how much they understand these issues. I do think that's going to change. I think with every six-month period, there's a change. You you saw that in Scotland, uh, you know, where no one really cared about the gender issue, really. This, This was just a few intellectuals. And then suddenly, when a tattooed rapist uh, male uh, male rapist is being sent to a, a women's prison and Nicola Sturgeon, the Scottish, uh, you know, first minister is sort of saying that, that this person is a woman. And then all of a sudden that broke the surface. And suddenly, if you look at the, the opinion survey data, the Scots became much more anti um, the, the trans agenda than, than the English. So that a population that had absolutely no consciousness was suddenly hit with this very vivid image of a, a tattooed rapist and suddenly woke up. And I, so I think that process of waking up, this issue is only going to gain more profile, I would argue, in the years ahead. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think it, um, it probably also depends very much on how, how people get their, their news a little bit. I feel like in, in the UK, there might be a, still a bit more openness to, um, I mean, media is partisan everywhere, but I feel like there's kind of maybe more middle ground media or maybe more tabloids that are right wing um, or might might highlight examples such as, you know, the, the, the rapist case and and, uh, and and move that into into more of a kind of a general consciousness. Because it feels to me like in, in the U.S. There, there are very clear divides between what media, what people consume and very little overlap of, of, of the examples. Because there's always some, you know, tear, tear jerker on, on every side that, you know, has this kind of. Um, emotional pull and and you know makes whatever anecdotal um, situation into into the new moral uh, <laughs> you know moral thing that everyone's gravitating for. I mean you know you could remember every, every everything from George Floyd obviously was probably the most important one, but 
everything from people collapsing in Wuhan. And, you know, there's just so much visual anecdata that's, uh, that essentially seems to be shifting politics in a, in, a, in a crazy way. And I wonder if just the way media is presented and consumed in the UK might, might make a difference. But Yeah, I think it does. I mean, I think that the UK has a sort of, I mean, it's different, right? So if you take the right, the right is well represented in print media in the UK, in the newspaper side of things. It is not well represented uh, in electronic media. In the US, I think it's a little bit different where you've got Fox. Now, granted, Fox is only one channel, but it has a big audience. For now. Um, And on the other hand, on the newspaper front, it's almost all left in the US. I mean, there are a few a few publications. I mean, the Wall Street Journal is kind of a business liberal paper. I mean, it does take some stances against cancel culture, but it's not really conservative in the same way Fox is. So you you have this inversion where kind of the electronic media is more balanced in the U.S. than in Britain, but the print media is more balanced here. And, and then the question then becomes just how these things filter down, right, into the population. Uh, I, I think there's, you know, in political science, I think there needs to be more respect for the argument that things take a while to percolate. I mean, even Obama, you know, what you saw with Obama's election was that white working class voters suddenly, you know, who were, who had high levels of what political scientists call racial resentment, let's call it. This is, I, I, I have problems with that construct, but let's take it at face value for now. I mean, those voters didn't realize until Obama became the leader of of the Democrats, which party someone who is white with racial resentment should be voting for. I mean, a significant number of them, right? So it's not a lot of the things we would assume, oh, dog whistling from George H.W. Bush, obviously is what shifting people uh, who have high racial resentment toward the Republicans. Actually, people have to be hit over the head with this stuff multiple times uh, in order to get the vast majority to shift. And so I think something like culture wars, it's going to have to take multiple, you know, Examples like the Isla Bryson case in Scotland, where for them to get what's going on um, in order to to shift column, in order for this to become a vote decider. Now, of course, politicians like Ron DeSantis or Glenn Youngkin can, if they campaign on that and they push it into the press, they can raise the profile of these issues. But if it's just happening in the media, particularly the print media, as in Britain, then the profile of these issues can remain lower for a longer period of time. Um, and so I think that's the dynamic we're in. It's not, if you look at the public opinion, people are against most of what the progressive activist class is in favor of on the culture wars. It's just that those issues currently uh, haven't broken into the consciousness of the median voter. Yes, it, it does seem to me like um, the, the the fact that we have kind of mass democracy um, and and also extremely efficient, high-speed mass media through multi, multiple channels kind of almost makes culture wars or something like a culture war inevitable because this is this seems to be, you know, this is how people get informed. This is, you know, this is how democracy happens. It, it turns everything into kind of a, a, a game that you have to participate in. Um, and I feel like this, the level that we've reached with this, I mean, this essentially is, is the same flavor of, of a thing that happened when you just had newspapers. But the, um, the fact that the internet is extremely efficient uh, at generating 
warping, expanding, uh, contrasting these narratives at high speed, I feel like really has made a, a huge change in, um, in, in how democracy is supposed to happen. I mean, it, it seems like democracy is, is just this, you know, countrywide, worldwide um, multiplayer game where the idea is that, you know, there is a team, you know, your team and uh, th- this team dynamic really, um, I don't know, it, it really kind of accelerates differences and uh, kind of pushes people t- to more extreme positions than, than they would otherwise have just to kind of distance themselves from from the, the other side. Um, I mean, what, what do you think this, this does to the idea of kind of a participatory uh, kind of democratic systems where, where people are supposed to be informed and supposed to exercise, uh, yes, uh, informed vote. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't think the internet, I mean, in, in a way it probably helps inform people more. Uh, I mean, there's some benefits to the internet, particularly in an age like ours, you know, because the legacy media have kind of been captured by a sort of, very opinionated, less impartial, more clickbait style model. If you, you know, if you didn't have independent media that could get around the gatekeeping of those institutions, if they were simply allowed to be remain the legacy institutions, then I think it would be easier to sort of that capturing from within by what I call cultural socialism or woke ideology could be harder to counter. So the indie, the internet really is a, a space where there is a, a diversity of opinion still. Um, so that's a positive. I, I also think if you, if you take polarization, you know, the literature on polarization in the U.S. shows that it's really from the 70s when people used to vote, you know, you, there were Democrats voting conservatively, there were Republicans voted, voting in liberal ways, there was all kinds of people who would tick, tick one uh, when I was growing up, I remember the typical thing was people would vote for maybe Bill Clinton uh, for president, and they'd vote for Republicans for Congress. So that kind of gridlock was was common. Um, what what kind of happened was that it used to be there was no relationship between being conservative and liberal, and being Democrat and Republican. I mean, very little relationship in the electorate. In 1980, for example, if you if you plotted the most conservative states on surveys against the most Democrat or Republicans, say the most Republican states, there wouldn't be, there was very little correlation. By the early 2000s, that had changed completely. And so it's worth noting that even before mass social media uh, and even the sort of clickbait journalism model, you already had significant polarization in the U.S. Now, it's come later to places like Canada, I would argue, is now very polarized as well. That's much more recent. Um, I'm not sure the media, uh, uh, the internet is necessarily to blame for that. I, I am of the view that this very uncompromising, uh, great, great awakening, the kind of radical cultural left, which was there back to the late 60s. So it's not new, but it's spread off campus in a much more uh, substantial way in the, since the mid 2010s. Uh, it's capturing institutions. It's politicizing everyday life. What you decide to drink, at what beer you drink, what car you drive, what coffee you, you know, all these sorts of things uh, have now been sucked into the, they've all been politicized. So that politicization of everyday life, which is to some extent deliberate. I mean, you look at the way woke um, corporations, you know, this idea of jumping on 
you know, the bandwagon of George Floyd or, or whatever it happens to be. That's a conscious decision that's injecting politics into the tissue of everyday life, of sports, of everything. So I think that is the main, if I would argue, I mean, I think that's the main driver of this politicization and polarization. Now, the right, of course, is hardly blameless. Uh, certainly in the U.S. case in particular, you know, you can trace that back to Newt Gingrich. They have sought to politicize things too. But I think the real driver of this is is the sort of radical cultural left that believes that it's just doing good. That it's not being political, it's just being moral. Uh, and that who could be against this, right? And, and because of that mentality, um, they're just charging through all of the institutions and politicizing them. Yes. There seems to be, I mean, I think you, the, the, the main point here you've already made in the sense that this is more of a moral crusade rather than, than a political thing. It really doesn't feel political for people who are true believers. And I feel like most of the people who are involved in, in this and take it very seriously are true believers because it is essentially a ersatz type of religious feeling or at least a very a virulent type of morality. And I feel like that's why it's had such an such an easy way into the institutions, um, because essentially the, the the core concepts of it, most people do accept. You know, people do believe in in fairness, um, maybe not in, in equity, but they do believe in equality of opportunity. So, kind of the, the core ideas behind it are yes, you know, they feel like common sense, uh, and then the the activists are essentially just taking your common sense and and and, and pushing it to. Something that's you know it's even more common sense. They're just they're just increasing the the, the level of, of goodness that everyone accepts. So I think that's why the pushback's been very very hard, and I feel like that's why people recoil at the idea that um, you know they might be racist or things like that. And it gives it gives these ideas incredible leverage to to penetrate everything. Um, yeah, because you know people don't want to be living in the in the specter of of uh, you know World War Two or, or other. Um, extremely potent uh, ideas and myths of the of the twentieth century. That, yeah, it just it just feels like something you'd you'd want to avoid uh, in any case. And yeah, it just it just opened up the the floodgates for something like this to come in and you know replace a, you know morality in a, in a in a world that was increasingly secular. I mean, you've studied this. Obviously, this is one of your main areas of study. Um, I wonder, you know, will will the the religious inherit the earth? <laughs> uh, because we, we've we've been hearing this that you know religion's on the way out, everything's secularizing. You know, I guess that's one thing. Yes, I, it might be, but um, the competition here is that obviously religious people do like to procreate much more than everyone else. So um, I wonder, will these two trends cancel each other out? Will one overtake <laughs> the other? How is it going to play out? Well, yeah, I, you're referring to my 2010 book. It seems a long time ago now on Shall the Religious Inherit the Earth, which is, yeah, the argument there is really that, you know, in Western countries and even now beyond, perhaps including Latin America, maybe even parts of North Africa, we are seeing religious decline, secularization, and that's very much the case. However, um, the world's population is getting more religious because most of the births are in religious parts of the world. Also, uh, religious people tend to have more children than those without religion. It's about a, even if you take, say, say, a white French woman who says they have no religion and a white French woman who attends church on a regular basis, it's like a, a half child, quarter to a half child. It's, I think it's around a half child 
And, and that's across most developed societies. Regular attenders are around replacement level, um, whereas those who are, let's say, non-religious, it's, it's can be as low as one child per couple. Um, now, that's without even talking about the fat, you know, the very high fertility groups like the Amish, the ultra-Orthodox, even the Orthodox Calvinists in the Netherlands. Uh, these groups all have many multiples, the birth rate of the average. And so if you kind of, the way it works with demographic projections, migration and switching behavior is what drives most of the model in the short run. And fertility differences drive the model in the long run. So in the long run, I think it's the fertility advantage of the religious, which will prove to be determining. In the short run, it's switching behavior, which is more important. Now, I should also say migration is, of course, an important short run factor. And generally what we're seeing is religious migrants coming to relatively secular countries. And, you know, the net flow is from the religious part of the world where 97% 97% of the world's population growth is taking place to the more secular parts of the world. So migration is also leading to a kind of desecularization. And you can see that in the immigrant cities like London, where, you know, London has got, you know, religion is doing better in London than anywhere else in Britain or Paris, for example, in France, because these are immigrant gateways and that's where religion enters a secular society. So, yeah, I think for all these reasons now, Looking longer term, I, I think Israel is one model for what ha- what may happen long term, and that is that Israel has been shifting to the right and shifting in a religious direction. I would argue almost purely for demographic reasons, is because it has a number of very high reproducing religious groups, especially the ultra orthodox. Just to throw you one stat, in sort of nineteen sixty, maybe a couple of percentage of the um, primary school children in the Jewish uh, sector in Israel. And now it's like a third of the first grade class. So the speed, well, it's just steady, right? You have more children, meaning more mothers, meaning more children. And and it just works in that logarithmic way. So, um, and there are people who've made that argument about the rise of Christianity as a birth rate advantage kept for, you know, I think Rod Stark made this argument, his rise of Christianity. So maintained for several centuries, produces enormous change. And and so if I had to predict, that's probably where I think we're going in terms of uh, religion. We'll we'll get secular for, become less religious for a few decades, perhaps. And then after 2050, it'll probably start turning around in many Western countries. Uh, And then longer term, it'll probably become more religious again. Mm. And I think this this kind of plays well with um, another one of your your theses. Um, I'm just going to quote, this is from a summary, so not from the book, but um, the fall of Anglo-America is a consequence of the characteristics that have come to define this group, namely expressive individualism and egalitarianism, which are antithetical to maintaining dominance. Um, I've noted here that uh, liberalism as their political theology seems to to fare the same. uh, And it feels to me like kind of secularism plays into this as well, because it is um, a flavor of the individualism and egalitarianism uh, in the sense that you know religion is is ex- exclusive in itself it's like it says we we are the tribe of moses we are the tribe of x or y uh we have these you know very specific rules you can't join or if you join you have to abide by this and uh it feels like um all of this this whole memeplex is 
defenseless. That's that's the, the problem with it. Yeah, I think it's it's it it depends a lot on you know what what the environment is like, right? So, for example, you know, in an authoritarian environment, if you are a fast reproducing, very traditional religious group like ultra orthodox Jews, that's actually not an evolutionary strategy that works very well. And so they were disproportionately targeted by the Nazis in the sense they just weren't able to pass. They weren't able to leave. They were, they suffered disproportionately, but in a sort of multicultural liberal democracy, um, that kind of a group thrives because that kind of a, a liberal democracy that's tolerant will allow such a group to quickly grow. Um, and in fact, it's, it's ideally suited because it keeps the modern world out and focuses on, on growing its own. Now, you mentioned sort of secularism, secularism. Now, I think secularism isn't exactly the same thing as liberalism and egalitarianism. So you could be secular nationalist, as we saw, let's say, uh, you know, secular nationalism is, is really going back to the 19th century into the early 20th, the dominant mode. And even if you look at authoritarian regimes like China, you know, they are secular in many ways. Um, so now the, one of the questions is whether secular nationalism is an alternative to religion in terms of can a secular nationalist society, which is not very liberal, get its birth rate to a replacement level? You know, this is one of the question marks. Maybe Eastern Europe, Central Eastern Europe might be a test bed for that philosophy. Um, and it's, the jury is out on that. I'm not sure what the answer is. I mean, whether secular nationalism may may be the challenger to the kind of religious society that we're seeing emerging in a place like Israel, for example. You know, that's an interesting thought. Now, on the other hand, we do see in the, in the U.S., for example, a connection between secularism and holding liberal and egalitarian views. And you see that to some extent in Britain as well. Although, again, you know, if you take voting for the populist right, that is strongest amongst people who are not regular religious attenders, but who identify as Christian. So they identify as Christian, but they're not averse to being interested in the pagan origins of their country's national identity, and they're also not regular attenders. So it's quite a, it can be a little bit complicated. I don't think we can just lump in religion and nationalism. They, they can sometimes conflict, they can sometimes work together. And likewise, with secularism and liberalism, these things sometimes are together, but they're sometimes uh, opposed, and they're not the same thing. Yes, no, I, I agree. I think the maybe the, um, the Venn diagrams that overlap with with nationalism and with with uh, religion would be um, kind of the the orientation toward kind of a transcendent ideal, you know, externally, uh, which you don't necessarily have with with liberalism. In liberalism, the idea is that okay, you've you um, you know you have the marketplace of ideas, you uh, you potentially believe in progress, that things you know get incrementally better once we hash out. Uh, disagreements about this but there's you know except for this idea of, of progress maybe there's not really a, a transcendent order that you look toward with nationalism maybe that transcendent framework would be the nation you know you refer to the nation and you adopt the values customs and tradition of your compatriots and, and that's important to you and with religion obviously there's a similar type of dynamic but um it feels to me like things that don't have a 
you know, a transcendent anchor tend to fall apart because the, the, the middle does not hold. And I feel like that's kind of maybe what these two um, spheres of thinking might have in common or, 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 or not. Yeah, I, I, absolutely right. And, and so nationalism and ethnicity as well, which is this idea of being ancestral, related to a, descended from a, a certain group of people, um, those traditions are perpetuated each generation. And so there is that sense of, um, you know, living on through your group, if you like. Um, now, what, what what's going on with liberalism and particularly left liberalism, I think, is most people, as you say, are probably living in the present and living as individuals. Um, however, it is the case that amongst the aficionados, that progressive activist left, there is, I think, what Charles Taylor would call the myth of the avant-garde, that, you know, this is the group that is in the vanguard of history that will be appreciated somehow by people who come later. We'll look back to them as being in the vanguard. And, and it's a very thin thing, so it's not encompassing the majority of the society. It's encompassing only a narrow avant-garde that can see themselves in a tradition, a radical tradition, if you like. I think that does exist, but I think it's quite narrow compared to nationalism or religion, which encompasses an entire community. Yes. And in terms of, of the trends um, with, with with nationalism, because I mean, tradition, uh, uh, religion seems to be making a comeback, but um, it does feel to me like it's a, it's a meme that's, it's it's very hard to to package it to be interesting to to people just because of so much immigration emigration. Um, I mean, you you kind of have populism being you know some some form of um, kind of coalescing around around this idea, um, but but the idea of national traditions. I mean, the, the way I mean in, in Romania it was a is a strange um, you know we we had a flavor of communism, but it was a strange communism. It was a bit of a nationalistic communism uh, that we had and people were very um, kind of forced to plug into traditions and new traditions were made up and a very, very strange mixture of things. And I feel like it, a lot of people after the fall of communism almost felt a sigh of relief because, you know, they could, they could now uh, abandon this, this pressure of, um, of isolation and, you know, go out and mingle with, with the West, which, you know, everyone looked up to. And, and that's kind of what we wanted to go, to go towards. So the, the meme of the nation state still existed within some, you know, more, more fringe right circles or even more fringe communist circles. Uh, but it, it just, it, it fell out of favor extremely rapidly. And I see the same trend happening now. I mean, just, any any person under thirty is not, I mean, maybe not any person. Uh, urban people under thirty, which are more, I mean, the, the urban centers here are growing as well, like anywhere else in the world. They're very, you know, they're not tied necessarily to the idea of the nation. So, you know, obviously, as someone coming from the National Conservative Conference, um, you know, <laughs> I like the concept of it. Uh, it just feels like a tough sell. That's interesting that I didn't realize that in Romania because this wouldn't come out necessarily in attitude surveys of various kinds. Um, you know, nation, nation is a bit tricky in the sense that you, you may have had a state nationalism with a kind of official set of doctrines being propounded by the state. Once that falls away, the way a lot of theorists of nationalism think about nationhood is it then becomes a, an everyday thing that is propagated in different ways. It might be 
consumer goods, popular culture, and there there will be competing versions of the nation. Um, so, for example, as I mentioned in my NatCon talk, I think that there is a woke version of, of nationhood, actually, that is really about uh, our country is going to be first, you know, the most progressive, the most woke, the most moral. And that's how we get our identity as a nation. We Canadians are, are you know, the, the most multicultural woke nation on earth. Well, okay. But against that, I think what you and I are talking about is the more traditional, particularistic form of nationhood, which is about uh, developing and, and protecting national traditions. Now, that is going to have an appeal to a portion of the nation. Um, and I guess the question is where the balance is between the more universalist, uh, either woke or just um, neoliberal type version of the nation versus the more traditionalist version of the nation. Um, and yes, there is pressure on particularly the traditionalist version of the nation, which is being attacked, at least in Western countries, as, you know, white supremacy or insensitive to, you know, newer groups uh, or, or to, to uh, minorities in the population. So I think there's definitely a clash between that form of nationhood and uh, the new cultural socialism, I call it. Um, I'm surprised, say, in, in, in Central and Eastern Europe, where those forces are weaker, I would have thought. So there, I don't know. I guess the, the question would be if you challenged any, you know, which of these traditions could you challenge? You know, for example, large scale immigration changes the ethnic composition, the traditional uh, ethnic composition of a nation. To what extent would that be acceptable in Romania? I, I mean, this is the big dividing line, at least in Western Europe. People who think I'd like to have that slower. I want to see more assimilation before we go for more change. You know, that group of people is quite substantial and is driving populist voting against them is are the people who who may either be indifferent or may be actively pushing progressivism. Um, and that's kind of the fault line. Now, I guess my my sense was that Central Eastern Europe was essentially not, you know, had a very weak group of people uh, who, who would favor, for example, large-scale immigration. Now, I know there isn't mm -hmm. large-scale immigration to those countries, but that would be an interesting test. I mean, the refugee crisis, for example, of 2015, you know, it, it was very interesting that, you know, countries like Slovakia and Hungary were in the EU, were the ones that said, no, we're not going to take uh, large numbers. And and I so that would suggest that maybe national, a version of traditional nationhood is, is not as weak as you might suppose, unless things have changed since then. Yes, I think there's uh, a, quite a bit of like surprising heterogeneity in, in the region as well. I feel like, you know, maybe Romania is a bit of an outlier. I think you know, Hungary is definitely an outlier in the other direction. Um, Romania, at least this, this is my feeling, we essentially become, became a province of the EU the second they accepted us under terrible conditions actually because they shouldn't have uh, according to their own their own standards we weren't really qualified to join but we accepted some some <laughs> very serious conditions and essentially what happened to Romania is that we lost top decile and bottom decile we essentially all the people at the top most most of the competent people uh, a few are still working in multinationals and they're getting paid very well but most of them are have left the country and are doing something somewhere else mostly in western europe and the bottom decile, essentially, our criminal element is now uh, <laughs> is now in, in, in nicer pastures, and that that makes me very happy because it's essentially dropped criminality here to almost right. zero. Oh, really? So, okay. Yeah, it's been it's been quite uh, useful for us. But obviously, 
you know, you, you have a lot, you have entire villages here that are just old people and just kind of a, a smattering of, of babies and toddlers and, and little children, which have been left behind by the parents who, you know, went to Western Europe, um, mostly to come back, but also to spend decades there just sending back remittances and, you know, having the, the grandparents or an uncle or an, an, an aunt uh, build, build a house and things like that. So, yeah, it's... Um, it's been a strange, a strange thing demographically, especially for us, because it's, um, in a way, things have changed uh, for the better, uh, because the EU coming in as kind of this external arbiter and and being the person with, uh, you know, being the entity with the purse strings, you know, having a lot of structural funds and us wanting to access them, um, it really put the, the 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 hammer down in terms of corruption, which kind of made us have to align to an external standard. Um, and external supervision, so it really gutted corruption in a, in a big way, which obviously is a, is a godsend. But then we had to sign up to some extremely stringent, um, you know, economic regulations, um, you know, environmental protection regulations, essentially to to the most high standards in the world. So obviously, our industry couldn't compete, and now we're kind of a a service economy, and you know, running off of money that people make in the West and send back. So it's, huh. you know, it's a mixed blessing, but it's, yeah, it's, it's a very different to Hungary. Hungary kind of has its, even just like um, in terms of ethnicity and, and, and their demography and, and their, their history as a nation and, you know, the, the Austro-Hungarian empire. I mean, it's, you know, while Romania is the, is the killing fields of Europe, you know, where the, the clash of empires happened, Hungary is part is is co-partner in one of the greatest empires the world has ever seen. So their national story is much more, uh, I don't know, complex and, and, and nuanced than ours. And they're definitely piggybacking off of it to have a different flavor of, of politics as well. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. I didn't realize those, those nuances. You know, I knew Romania, for example, had its, certainly has ethnic minorities like the Hungarians and so forth, but uh, I didn't, hadn't realized quite the, the differences within, but um but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, obviously there is a question mark, you know, in the central, the EU central European states with their emigration and their aging and, you know, birth rates are, are probably, you know, slightly below the EU average maybe. And so, yeah, given those kind of population drivers, what tends to happen? I mean, now having said all that, you know, you go to England, a lot of the small villages are very elderly as well. Um, this is a trend across much of the West. And so maybe Eastern Europe is slightly further along that track, but it's happening everywhere. Yes. I mean, this is, um, yeah, I don't think we can, we can escape it. I think we've just, uh, we've just not been, we've had a slightly different flavor to, to everything that's happening in the West just because we've, you know, been a labor pool for them and just, uh, yeah, don't really have much of a, of a local industry. So yeah, there's just different different pressures on us, and yeah, we we weren't we didn't have that internal cohesion that the that the Hungarians have. Also, because we're a larger country, much more heterogeneous. There there are a lot of ethnic enclaves and uh, kind of local tensions. It's it's a bit more loose Romania compared to compared to Hungary. Um, but anyway, I uh, I also wanted to 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 bring up um, something that you you wrote fairly recently. Uh, I think just before the National Conservative Conference. And you've coined, I guess, the, the liberal national conservative uh, compared <laughs> to the post-liberal national conservative, which I think I might, might be a little bit more familiar with just because 
obviously the whole space uh, has this post-liberal whiff to it. Uh, you know, people aren't not necessarily that convinced that classical liberalism or, or whatever, um, you know, whatever, whatever stage of liberalism we've reached now is, is a solution. Um, and I wonder, I mean, you mentioned that, okay, one of the focuses here is negative liberty and a moderate vision of positive liberty. Well, my question is like, up to what point? How moderate and who decides? <laughs> yeah, what are, exactly. And that's a really good point, right? And, and you know, like anything in moderation, right? That's kind of almost a rule for all ideologies. Um, and, and another point I was making in the NatCon speech really is that, uh, you know, these universalist ideologies have, have you know, arguably caused more violence and genocide than the particularist one. I, and, certain, and studies of post-war genocide show that, 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 that that's the case. Um, but, but yeah, liberalism, I do think, I guess I am a believer in the, in negative liberalism, if, if that means essentially, you know, a sphere of individual rights, right not to be arbitrarily arrested and so on. Uh, procedures such as separation of powers, uh, for example, I mean, I'm a, I think that's all to the good. Uh, and, and I think my argument with Hazoni, so Hazoni's argument is we need God uh, in the political sphere, in the classroom, so on. And um, that that's the only way you get to the good society. Now, uh, th there's a whole bunch of issues at play here, but, but the way I would argue it is I think you can have a, it's not perfect, but I think you can have a political neutrality and balance throughout the public sector. Um, and so what we've seen is, is essentially the woke capture of the public sector and of the school system and the university system. I think, you know, we haven't even begun to exhaust the tools we have in um, constitutional law, lawfare, and in the demo in, in, in democracy to fight back against these things, to restore, to get uh, cultural socialist ideology out of our public institutions through a, through a number of different mechanisms. So one is something like CRT bans, um, you know, attempts to reshape the school curriculum uh, in terms of history teaching, in terms of sex education. So all of that is happening, and we don't know where the end point of that is going to be. But that's all happening within a, a liberal architecture. So I'm kind of not, I'm not a fan of junking that liberal architecture, because I think it's kind of the least worst system. Some of the uh, theocons, you know, their arguments around this idea that liberalism led inevitably to um, the, the disaster that, that we're living in. I don't, I, I'm more skeptical of that. I think you can have, if you look at East Asia, these are liberal democracies. They've pursued a very different path. Um, I think that's possible within the system. Now, that's negative liberty, um, procedural liberty, but what about the positive liberty? Now, I guess I, I do think there's some value to, uh, you know, rationality, personal autonomy, and, and so forth. The question is always about the tension between those things and, let's say, community, community obligations and restraints. And it's, it's about having a balance between those. So I sort of take, for example, in terms of knowing yourself, the, the, the distinction usually made between communitarians and liberals is the communitarian, like Charles Taylor will say, well, you get to know yourself through the groups you choose to belong to and participate in, and the, the liberal individualist will say it's through introspection and almost cutting yourself off 
from all of these other ties. I actually think, you know, there's value in, in both of those things, but I think you kind of, we should be aiming for a kind of synthesis and, 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 and a moderation of both of these tendencies. Um, so I'm, I'm more in, on that side of the ledger than going all in on, you know, we all have to revert to communal tradition and be bound by that 100%. I, I think we, you want to still have questioning, you want to still have dissent, um, and that's kind of where I'm more of a kind of liberal national conservative. And also, I think in terms of this idea of God in the, in the, in the public sphere, which, which Hazoni talks about in his recent book, which is on my shelf, very interesting. But I think rather than replacing the woke religion with Christianity or Judaism, I, I would rather have it be the case that, that the school is providing a balanced perspective and a neutral perspective. And I think we can get there with patient uh, and persistent um, policy making of the kind we're beginning to see. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think I think this is a very um, a very hopeful perspective. And I, um, I, you know, you you said it essentially. You know, you'd rather have in, instead of woke religion, you'd have no reli- or not necessarily the religion, kind of a neutrality and a, a plurality of perspectives. My fear is that you know, just by watching what's what's happened in the last you know, 10 years and, and, and kind of Anglo politics, which trickles down to everyone's politics, unfortunately, is that it is, you know, nature pours a vacuum and especially a moral vacuum and that there is um, implicit religion in, in how a state is run because, it, you know, the, the, the nature of law, you know, how something like the Supreme Court's interprets law is seen through a certain moral filter um, and that, you know, you could have probably, you know, in, in schools, I mean, depending on how, how much you want to load the curriculum, you have many, many perspectives. But in the end, you know, there, there is some form of transcendent that emerges, that emanates from the material um, and that people are looking for. I mean, the, the students is, is looking not only for information, but also for guidance. And that guidance part, you know, I, I tend to maybe agree more with Hazoni in the sense that I'd rather, you know, if, if this, is, this is my perspective, I'd rather have his God than whatever, um, you know, demonic concoction of (laughs) semi-moral, you know, weird things emerge from um, people's, you know, it it seems to me like a lot of stuff that that comes out of wokeness is just, you know, people's self-interest, very short term, um, all sorts of moral instincts guided into, into weird directions that just kind of emerges from, from the culture, culture war as well. Um, and it just feels like, okay, this is not transparent. This is uh, constantly shifting. You cannot base anything on it. Uh, you cannot base even, you know, trade relations on this because you never know, you know, the, the law changes. Like, you know, civil rights law is, is, is a bit of an abomination in itself. I mean, a lot of people made this point. Um, there, there's all sorts of things here that are shifting and unstable. And I feel like it's very hard to, to, to base your society on if I had, you know, in an ideal world, I'd, I'd also would like, you know, neutrality, but it just feels like in base reality, it's unattainable. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a fair point. I mean, I do think there are some areas that are not neutral. I mean, the content of the school curriculum, for example, is something that is shaped directly by, can be shaped directly by the government. I think the right has been weak has not followed through on this. This goes back to Reagan in the U.S., who already was raising questions about the hist- teaching of history. 
the right lost all those battles. The left outlasted them and defeated them time and time again. Same thing in Britain, same thing in Canada, for example. The right has to get much more serious about culture, has to elevate it as a central aspect of its being. And if it does, and it's willing to fight those battles of the books, to fight the blob, the, the educational establishment, then I think it can get a curriculum that is you know, patriotic, that, that allows for certainly an honest examination of history and, and some other perspectives, but has a sort of dominant patriotic thrust, uh, which is perfectly in line with scientific reason. I think that's possible to have. I do agree with you. I think that just as communism was kind of defeated, I think cultural socialism has to be defeated. So this is a battle we're going to have to win. But I think that, you know, we can win that battle, I guess, is what is my view, is that we can drive it out of the schools. Now, you'll still have, you know, people teaching critical race theory in universities, but it'll be more fringe than it is now, not the dominant perspective. Um, so I just think we can drive this back to the fringe. Um, and it's okay if it's on the fringe. There's always, It's okay to have a few people holding the torch for these crazy ideas, but they cannot be the establishment the way they become the establishment. And they become the establishment because the right, you know, the mainstream has just not had antibodies against, I mean, against really the kind of emotional blackmail that is inherent in a lot of these taboos and stigmas that progressive stigmas that have developed. And so part of the argument I may, will make in my next book is that, you know, the emergence of the anti-racism taboo in the early to mid 60s in the US is a very, is kind of almost a watershed moment. Now, on the one hand, it's a good thing that, you know, prejudice, racial prejudice is not acceptable. But on the other hand, taboos are very black and white. There's no shades of gray there. It's not about, there's no redemption. There's no more serious and less serious offenses. And once these things are stretched to include, you know, not just race, you know, not just race, but gender and sexuality, the meaning of them can be expanded and expanded and expanded by uh, these norm entrepreneurs. And that's kind of what we've been living through. We're going to have to, I think, start to unpick and question these taboos. That's something that I don't think has happened yet. And I think it's going to have to happen, that we're going to have to roll back the scope of these taboos and make them much more narrowly defined the way they are in the law, for example. And that is going to take the right arguments, the antibodies to COVID, for example. It's a similar kind of thing that needs to happen. And once we've got the antibodies and we're able to push back and rip off these fake labels like anti-racism or inclusion that are wielded, these euphemisms that are wielded by cultural socialism to sort of mask what they're really up to, uh, once we get better at that and are able to do that and, and emotionally shut down the kind of emotional blackmail that they use, then we can start, I think, to reform the system and get it back to an even keel. And once that starts to happen, I think we're going to move much more quickly towards um, a sort of accommodation that is more reasonable. But I, and, and so I still have hope that within the existing system, we can do that. Um, I also think if you look at the rise of these ideas, they are actually 100 years old. They're not 10 years old. I mean, they go back to the rise of modern art and architecture, the kind of bohemian enclaves and radicalism. This is a cultural, um, this is something cultural that I think is quite independent of the institutional and legal architecture we have. So I don't think it is traceable to that, uh, to that political and legal architecture, which is why I think we can keep the architecture, but we have to fight the culture and push it back to something more reasonable. Mm -hmm. I, I definitely agree that um, just just implementing 
law, you know, very uh, kind of detached from the culture is not going to do that much in the sense that, you know, if, if you take over an institution and just say, okay, from, from now on, don't teach, don't teach, I don't know, critical race theory, but everyone in your faculty is a true believer in critical race theory. They're going <laughs> to teach critical race theory. I mean, if you, if, if the punishment is not, you go to jail for 10 years or, you know, if we, if we catch you doing it, uh, if it's just like, oh, you know, you shouldn't, uh, and this is your new curriculum and you figure it out. Um, I mean, the, the level of, um, draconian implementation of of law and lawfare if if the essentially the, the cultural the moral substructure of the culture that you're applying it to is uh is not there then you know it's not not necessarily maybe not useless i think it's, it's useful as a sign that a certain political elite thinks that this is you know this is what needs to change uh but yeah i mean you know the the, the law is only as good as uh, as uh, as the enforcement mechanism and also Definitely only as good as, as how much people agree with its uh, if it's with its rightness, um, and I feel like that's probably the the main lever here. Like people realizing, on mass, mostly in the elite, but also in kind of the the middle classes, that um, you know racism might be a sin, sure, but it is definitely not the cardinal one, and it is not useful for people to completely burn down their civilization on its pyre. I mean, this is, you know, the, the, the sacrifices made in the, in the name of anti-racism are just, just immense. And I feel like this is kind of like a trance that people have, have entered, like you said, kind of in the sixties that now I hope through many examples and through, um, through a lot of conversation on the topic, more and more people will, will snap out of in different ways. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think I think the metaphor I like to use is where you have a sport like football and there's no rules and people are taking liberties. Um, then you have a referee come in who starts calling penalties, but there's no limit on how many penalties. All the incentives are to call more and more penalties and people to take dives. You know, that's the society we're in on when it comes to identity politics. Um, now, what you have in, in sports is you have either penalties for taking dives and, and certainly pressure on referees not to call so many penalties. And that's a sort of counter counter pressure that keeps the game flowing the way it should. You need the penalties, but you also need pressure not to call too many. Now, how do we get that counter pressure in our society on racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia? I mean, that's really the, the, the difficulty that we need to establish those guardrails. I do think uh, I'm less pessimistic than you in the sense that I think government regulation where properly enforced and we you can have these enforcement mechanisms the uk's higher education freedom bill which which i was involved in uh, has a academic freedom directorate which again you have to appoint the right people but proactively can go after universities and so almost in real time if they try and pull anything can issue a fine uh, i do think in Schools, if, if teachers are, are essentially indoctrinating, they should be fired. That should be in the press. I think these mechanisms do exert a very quick chilling effect. It's already happening in Florida with uh, DeSantis's Stop Woke Act. But, um, you know, it, if, you, if you take a look at what's happened with Oxford University's attempt to uh, – some of those students trying to um, shut down Kathleen Stock's talk. I mean, there's already a chilling effect of this legislation on the cancel culture. So I do think it's working – I think it, you know, who knows, 
you know, in the long term, will it be enough? I don't know. I certainly think we can turn the screws on this stuff to a very high level and still remain within the law, within the liberal democratic fa- uh, framework. In fact, I think it's actually upholding the liberal democratic framework to crack down on private censorship. Um, what will be the outcome of that struggle? I don't know, but I think we have to engage in it. Yes, I think there's, um, yeah, there's there's a lot to be seen. <laughs> I mean, I think, uh, you know, Florida is definitely an, an interesting test case. And uh, um, it, it also seems like, okay, they're, they're necessar- necessarily ahead of the curve being a red state and being kind of famously red um, by already kind of having internalized a lot of these ideas. So essentially the folk religion is, in for many people in that state, is already in line with this piece of legislation. I think if you'd, if you'd move, take the same law and just like smash it into whatever the wokest, you know, uh, region of California, you'd have a different type of problem because it's just, you'd, you'd, you know, enforcement would have to be much more draconian. Um, you know, you'd, you'd have that thing. So hmm. um, yeah, I, 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 I don't well, know. I should, very briefly, I should say that, that Cass Sunstein, legal scholar does argue that there are cases where laws change norms. So Smoking and seatbelt regulation led led eventually to norms against, you know, not having a seatbelt or, or smoking. And so I do think it is possible that some of these legal things could lead to cultural change as well. Yes, I think so. I'm, I'm, these two examples, I think, are, are less morally salient. <laughs> so I think it might be, you know, I, I don't, maybe people have a, you know, a more religious uh, uh, attraction to smoking for, for whatever reason. <laughs> I can imagine some, but uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm very curious myself. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not um, keen on, you know, throwing liberalism out. There's a lot of it, a lot of stuff about the principles of liberalism that that I like. I just have grown a little bit. Um, suspicious of it as a as a you know a panacea because i you know i see a lot of people saying okay we just need to liberal a bit harder and uh yeah it's uh yeah i mean i'm i'm, I'm hopeful i hope so i mean oh, you you <laughs> mentioned you have a, a new book coming um and is there any other thing that you might want to reveal about it when when is it coming out kind of what what are what are the parameters around it yeah, thanks, thanks. Yeah, this is, uh, well, what we were talking about around the rise of the race taboo in the mid-60s, I mean, that's kind of the fulcrum of the argument. So the book will be, a, is, you know, it's essentially a book on the rise of what I call cultural socialism and how we got here. Uh, but also, it, where it's different from a number of books, and let's face it, there are a lot of books now in this space, is it is, it's less of a rant, it's more of a kind of very data-based analysis. I do a lot of kind of crunching of the survey data, public opinion. So what the public, where the public opinion is on a lot of these questions, it's usually roughly around two to one against the woke position, but amongst young people, uh, certainly in Britain and, and the US where I've done a lot of uh, the data, uh, actually they are a much more morally absolutist and woke generation. And as they enter the workforce, we're actually wokeness is going to increase, not decrease. So this isn't a blip. Um, it's structurally built into the uh, new generations that are coming through. Now, granted, that's much stronger amongst younger women than it is amongst younger men, but still, uh, this is going to have a big impact on our society. So we have a short window in which to try and do something about this before, uh, through cohort change, we may lose the sort of liberal democratic societies that we become used to. 
Um, so that's one theme in the book. Another is what to do about it. And so a lot of these policy ideas, I try and, you know, the, the field is changing so quickly, but I'm trying to sort of synthesize a kind of best practice approach. And there's about 10 different, it's sort of a 10 point uh, agenda that I think we need to follow through within that liberal democratic framework that I think can really, it gives us our best shot anyway, at turning the tide on this ideology. I think that's that's ex- extremely useful just because a, a lot of the books that have been written about this tend to be um, a bit more kind of high level philosophical. There's not that much that everyone has got their own uh, flavor of, um, of, you know, interpretation of what, what, what actually went wrong. And uh, yeah, I mean, the, as many books on, on wokeism as religion, all <laughs> yeah. sorts of ideas, but yeah, no, that's, that's, that's excellent. And you, you throw yourself, you throw your hat into the ring uh, of solutions, which is also something that people don't really like to address. <laughs> it's real hard. So that's, that's, that's excellent. Um, before I let you go, I want to ask you the question of the show. Everyone gets this question. Um, do you have a recommendation of a uh, subversive thinker in the spirit of the show that, uh, that you think might be underrated that people might uh, might want to check out yeah it, it's interesting i i had a uh, I, you know i had a doctoral super, uh, examiner the person who examined my phd was a well-known a reasonably well-known uh, figure called nathan glazer who was a member of the kind of new york intellectuals which is a group of intellectuals that, um, that, that really came of age in the 1930s but but also post-war as well um, and many of them, you know, were Jewish and they moved from the left to the right. You know, Glazer, in my view, is kind of one of the more interesting of this group. He wrote a book uh, opposing affirmative action in the mid-1970s called Affirmative Discrimination. He uh, was one of the earliest intellectuals to say that immigration doesn't, you know, it, it doesn't provide stability in America and there has to be assimilation. And he was sort of critical of large-scale immigration as well, and also multiculturalism and political correctness. So I think he was kind of ahead of his time. He experienced the student revolts, and as early as 1969 was writing about how the so-called free speech movement in Berkeley had mutated into an anti-free speech movement. And that's really the precursor of so many of the things we're living through is just was around in the late 60s. It's just that this spread much more widely and has sort of institutionalized itself. But he was already on top of, I think, a lot of the the kind of progressive and liberal trends uh, that have spread. And so I think he's he's an interesting person to read for, uh, not just post-liberals, but, you know, because he was, a, a I guess, a classical liberal, but also a an American nationalist in a way um, and, and, and very much anti-political correctness as it was known then. Um, and so, yeah, I would say Nathan Glazer would be somebody who I think should be revisited by people who are interested in this area. No, excellent. I mean, his, his name sounds familiar, but I don't think I've, I've ever read anything by him. So that's a, a good, unique recommendation. Oh, good. I love those. <laughs> um, and yes, I mean, it's, it's always easy to, um, be pro free speech when you're when you're out of power. That seems to be the default position. The second the tables the tables turn. Anti free speech is, is ideal. So yeah, that's yeah true. it's it feels like that's kind of uh, you know the, the temperature shifted in the in the sixties and seventies, and then suddenly, yeah, it, it wasn't it wasn't a good idea to allow free speech. <laughs> but yeah, um, well, I want to thank you so much for coming on. Um, this has been really lovely, and it's been lovely meeting you in person as well. Which yeah. Uh, rare it's been great, Alex. Yeah. 
no, it's it's nice to be able to make that connection, right? Um, and that's that's one thing that's fun about conferences. Yes, I mean I've uh, that con pretty much the the conference for me. I don't really go out much, to be honest. <laughs> sure. uh, just I'm just stay like, in the woods in Romania. Then I'm staying in the woods in Romania. I am now in in the breeding phase of my life. My main priority is to you know maximize my fertility window <laughs> and uh, yeah, and take care of, obviously of my family and current children. <laughs> so uh, yeah, but uh, NatCon is is awesome. I don't think I'll make it to the the one in December. I'll, but I'll have a very fresh new baby. And oh wow! Just won't okay. won't work for me. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'll definitely come next year and, uh, I'm very excited to, to see. Apparently, NatCon UK is definitely happening next year and it's going to be bigger, better, louder, prouder, <laughs> <laughs> and much more annoying to the press, I'm sure. Uh, so yeah, I'm excited about that. Um, but yes, I want to thank you. And I also want to point people to, uh, your many fine books to the upcoming one, which is not yet out there. It doesn't have a title, I think, but people should, you know, keep, keep their eyes on, on the space. Uh, and to white shift, we didn't really go into into white shift, but it's uh, yeah, it's, it's a very worthy look into um, into the future of white majorities, which is a, is a phrase that I'm sure got you into a bit of trouble because anyone looking at this is, has to be a suspect type of person. Great. Um, but yes, thank you so much for coming on, and uh, yes, um, I uh, I will see you around. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for having me. <laughs>